Anglo-Saxon Attitudes, Chapter One. Gerald Middleton was a man of mildly but persistently depressive temperament. Such men are not at their best at breakfast, nor is the week before Christmas their happiest time. Both Larwood and Mrs. Larwood had learned over the years to respect their employer's melancholy moods by remaining silent. They did so on this morning. The house in Montpellier Square was as noiseless as a tomb. Mrs. Middleton had rung up from her house in Marlow as early as eight o'clock to inquire what arrangements her husband had made for his annual Christmas visit to her. Would he, she asked, arrange to bring down their son John? Mrs. Larwood had tactfully refused to wake Professor Middleton. She would see that he phoned Mrs. Middleton during the morning. She said, "The message was placed with the letters and newspapers beside Gerald's plate." The prospect of speaking to his wife on the telephone and even more of the family Christmas party greatly heightened his depression. He decided not to open his letters until he had read the news, or to open the Times until he had softened his spirits with the more popular daily newspaper. Which always accompanied it. It was an unwise decision. The optimistic presentation of decidedly bad news on the front page turned his passive gloom into active irritation. On the middle page was a lengthy article by his son John. He always swore that he would not read John's articles, yet he always did so. Their cocksure and sentimental tone, at least. Lent justification to his hearty dislike of his younger son, particularly if he accompanied his reading by a mental image of his wife's cooing admiration of their son's talent. Once more, he read, John Middleton investigates fearlessly a case of tyranny and injustice in this overgoverned England of ours. In each investigation that he undertakes. John Middleton goes directly to the center of the ill, exposes the canker, and proposes its remedy. He is at once physician, surgeon, and healer of the serious illnesses which threaten the freedom and decent living of every one of us in England today, of you and me, and of every ordinary citizen. The Daily Blank does not share John Middleton's political views. He describes himself as an independent radical. The Daily Blank is not a radical newspaper, but because it believes that any man who is prepared to fight these deadly evils, without fear of person, office, or party, is a friend of England. It is proud to publish these courageous articles. John Middleton showed himself a friend of freedom, as a Labour member of Parliament. He showed himself even more so when he resigned from the Labour Party and the House of Commons to fight your battle without the restraints of red tape. If you have grievances, if you know of neighbours suffering under the injustice of government tyranny, big or small, send your problems to John Middleton. He will investigate your case without fear or favour. Gerald tried to tell himself that he should be fair to John. The purpose surely was a good one, if the manner was necessarily nauseating. 
He had no right to judge his son's career by his knowledge of his popularity-seeking character, his histrionic, self-deceiving temperament. Never, after all, had he himself been prepared to face the truth in life, either in his family or in his profession. He had less than no right to judge the manner in which his son did what he had not the courage to do so. He settled himself to read this particular case. A Mr. Harold Cresset, a market gardener of outer London, had suffered expropriation of his land by a ministry which wished to build a government factory on the site. After months of delay in which Mr. Cresset had dismantled his greenhouses, ceased trading, and so on, a curt letter informed him that the land was not needed and that the compensation money must be repaid. The simplicity, the decency, the bewilderment of Mr. Cresset and his wife were painted in glowing colors. The tragedy of old Mr. Barker, Mrs. Cresset's paralyzed father, was dwelt upon. He had, it seemed, been a coachman of the old school, a school long vanished. Only at the end of the article were the villains named. Bureaucratic clerks and all their hideous, inhuman behavior were charged with the deed. But they were only the instruments of tyranny. The real villain was the head of the department, a highly esteemed administrative civil servant named Pelican. Did Mr. Pelican, John asked, know the minutiae of his department as his reputation for thoroughness demanded? If so, he had erred by commission. Was he ignorant of his clerk's and executive's incompetence? Then he had erred by omission. Much play was made with Mr. Pelican's name. While we all loved the Pelicans in St. James's Park, it was said, let them suffice. We needed no more Pelicans in Whitehall. It was not, it seemed, upon the blood of his own breast that Mr. Pelican fed his bureaucratic young, but upon the lifeblood of hard-working citizens like Harold Cresset, etc. Gerald's first reaction was to decide that Mr. Pelican must be a charming man and Mr. Cresset a rogue. Then angrily he told himself that he knew nothing of the world around him. He had no right to judge. Who was he to dismiss John's story of bureaucratic tyranny? A man with large enough private means to scorn complaints against taxation as vulgar and irresponsible. A family man who had had neither the courage to walk out of the marriage he hated, nor the resolution to sustain the role of father decently. An ex-professor of medieval history who had not even fulfilled the scholarly promise of studies, whose general value he now doubted. A sensualist who had never even had the courage of his desires. An aesthet who could not even add to his collection of drawings without pangs of conscience about his money or his neglected historical studies. A 60-year-old failure, in fact, and of that most boring kind, a failure with a conscience.
His heavy, handsome, dark face flushed with disgust at the tediously repetitive chain of self-recrimination at which he had once more arrived. Before he opened his letters, he set himself resolutely to refresh his depressed spirits. For all the boredom of this evening's meeting of the Historical Association, for all the wretched prospect of Christmas at Inge's, today promised to be really a very pleasing one. The new catalogue of the Grundtvig collection had arrived. There was nothing to prevent him spending all day on it, to vary the pleasure of his own Johns and Daumiers and Cotmans with memories of Leonardo's and Raphael's that would never be his. There was the pleasant prospect of trying to persuade old Grantham to part with that fusilier that evening. But he felt no more cheered. He thought of that girl in Asprey's who had sold him Inge's Christmas present yesterday. He dwelt slowly upon the pleasures of her bust, her hips, the easy movement of her thighs. He could remember only that he was sixty-four, could wonder only whether his growing lust was a simple case of enlarged prostate that would have to be dealt with. His spirits remained depressed. He turned to the two letters that lay beside his plate, the handwriting of the one he recognized as Sir Edgar's. The other was unknown. He preferred the unknown. Dear Sir, he read, I'm preparing a PhD thesis for the London, London University School of English Literature. My subject is the intellectual climate of England at the outbreak of the First World War. As you may imagine, I am anxious to concentrate on what posterity has shown to be really vital in that age, rather than on the conventional aspect. Shaw, Wells, Galsworthy, etc. Whilst, therefore, paying some attention to the foundations of the Bloomsbury School in the Cambridge thought of the early years of the century, I am devoting the major part of my thesis to D.H. Lawrence and Wyndham Lewis, in relation to the latter, I am investigating the careers of such less-known figures as T.E. Holm and Gilbert Stokesay. I believe that you are a close friend of Stokesay's, and I should be glad of any personal information you may care to provide me with upon this neglected and important young poet and essayist, whose work in retrospect appears, to my generation at any rate, to reflect a seriousness and a final significance, which criticism today teaches us is the only true criterion of literary merit. In particular, I would be glad of any light you can throw upon his relations with his father, the historian Lionel Stokesay, and in particular upon the part Gilbert Stokesay played in the Anglo-Saxon excavations made at Meltham, East Folk, in 1912. I believe that his practical association with art historians may throw valuable light on his aesthetic themes. I've already corresponded with his widow, but she is not able to provide me with any information of importance. 
You may wish to know my qualifications for carrying out this task. I am a graduate of Minnesota University and Northwestern University. I have majored in aesthetics, music, and literature, paying special attention to the metaphysical poets. I have attended courses in creative writing, given by such eminent poets as. Gerald laid aside the letter without reading the signature. He had long ago decided that he had nothing to say about Gilbert Stokesay, which could interest these many young people. He so admired his work. He had never been able to get through any single thing that Gilbert had written. So Dolly, he reflected with amusement, had been able to provide no information. She was probably drunk when she got the letter. He pushed her image out of his mind. He had long vowed that he would not think of her, and yet every day he did so. She had, after all, been the one really happy passion of his life, and through his ineptitude and cowardice, he had ruined that happiness. The brash young American little knew what sore places he was invading with his clumsy, clumsy fingers. Dolly and Melfem, the two forbidden subjects of his thoughts, the constant underlying preoccupations of his depressions. If he were to tell what he sometimes believed to be Gilbert's real part in the Melfem excavations. He would indeed throw light on his dead friend's aesthetic theories. He turned to Sir Edgar's letter in desperation. Dear Middleton, I should be glad of a word with you before Forzheim's lecture tonight. You will find me in the anteroom. It is possible that association business may come up at the end of the lecture, if Forzheim doesn't go on for too long. If it does, we may be sure that the question of the editorship of the history will be raised. While I do not in any way want to force you into a premature decision, I should be glad to have some idea of what you intend. I have already told you how deeply I, and not only I, but the great majority of your colleagues, hope that you will accept the editorial duties, but we cannot for too long postpone our decision. In any case. Some intim intimation of your feelings before the lecture would be a helpful guide to me in my direction of any discussion that may arise. Yours sincerely, Edgar Ifley. They already knew his decision. Gerald thought angrily, he had made it as plain as he could that he did not intend to become editor. It was sheer sentimentality they're asking him. A refusal to give up the belief of promise in a man over sixty. If they did not want Arthur Clune, and he would, and he could well understand that they might not, then let them have the courage to say so and appoint some younger man. The trouble was that, through fear of Clune's appointment, all the younger people—Roberts, Stringwell, Anderson, and the rest—had made him their candidate. Well, he would not be bullied into it by the affection of old stagers like Sir Edgar, or the fears of his ex-pupils like Roberts.
as to intimations of his feelings. His feelings were his own affair. If he were to tell them, it would be that he had long felt that detailed scholarship, such as Kloon favored, was insufficient, disreputable, crossword puzzle work, and historical generalizations were an equally disreputable pseudo-philosophical moralizing of the kind that old Stokesay had indulged in at the end of his life. All this seeking for the truth of the past should be in abeyance until we had reached some conclusions about the truth of the present. In any case, who was he to dabble in truth-telling when he had evaded the truth, past and present, for most of his life? If they chivied him, he would raise the red herring of his projected work on England under Edward the Confessor. The long-promised work to succeed his book on Knut was now, by now an old enough chestnut to embarrass any of them if he brought it up. He rose from the table in bitter mood. Weighed down with doubts, struggling with his depression, he made his way to his study to telephone his wife. As he walked through the hall, he caught sight of his handsome, flushed features, his tall, erect figure in the long gilt mirror, and was disgusted. Good God, he thought, what a bloody, shameful waste. Rose Lorimer, struggling with weighed-down shopping baskets, made her immense way among the marble and mosaic of the corner house, caught a passing view of herself in a mirror, and was pleased. She had always affirmed that women scholars were primarily women and should not disregard the demands of feminine fashion. To advertise learning by disregard of dress was to be odd, and Dr. Lorimer disliked oddity more than anything. The vast intellectual excitement of her researches during since the war had not left her a lot of time for thinking about clothes, but her mother had always said that with a good fur coat, however old, one could not go wrong, and for her own part, she had added a bold dash of color to cheer our drab English winter, woman's contribution to banish gloom. Twenty years ago, of course, she reflected, straw hats with flowers would have been out of place in December, but the dictates of fashion were so much less strict now. A daze, it seemed. And then Dr. Lorimer had always loved artificial flowers, especially roses. There was no want of artificial flowers in the corner house entrance hall. An enormous cardboard turkey and an enormous cardboard goose, owing their inspiration to somewhat vulgarized memories of Walt Disney, held between them the messy the message, Merry Xmas, made entirely of white and pink satin roses. As the tableau revolved, the turkey changed to a Christmas pudding and the goose to a mince pie, each suitably adorned with a wide grin and two little legs, and a prosperous new year, they announced, this time in real chrysanthemums. Dr. Dr. Lorimer thought amusedly of Christmas, so rich in pagan symbols. The real masters of the church had taken small pains to disguise their victory there. Muffled voices at the back of her mind pressed her to change her tense. 
Take small pains, it said. In two days' time, she thought, initiates everywhere, in northern Europe, and farther even than that, will be working their old magical spells of health and renewal over their unsuspecting Christian flocks. In England here, their archbishop, King Fisher, she smiled to think of the significance of the name, would be at the head of them. So old a mystery concealed for so long from so many, but not from her. She shook herself and drove off the voices. Knowledge led one into such strange dreams. It was all over long ago, of course. Nevertheless, the early Christian missionaries bought their pagan converts at high price with the ceremonial adulteration of their savior's birthday. She tucked her giant legs with difficulty beneath one of the small tables and looked at the menu with a certain Puritan alarm at its luxurious array of dishes. Choice was made simpler for one, she reflected, at her usual ordinary Lyons, or ABC. She sighed at the uneasy prospect of sensual choice. Clarissa Crane, however, appeared to be such a distinguished novelist and novelists, no doubt, were used to living luxuriously. A few years ago, she would not have imagined herself introducing a novelist as a guest at the annual lecture, but Miss Crane's letter had sounded so very interested, and if the ac academical world insisted on its narrow limits, then other means of disseminating the truth must be found. Clarissa Crane, searching the vast marble tea room with a certain distaste, suddenly recognized her learned hostess and felt deeply embarrassed. In all this drab collection of matinee-goers and pantomime parties, that only could be her. She had expected somebody dowdy, indeed had worn her old green tweed suit in deference to the academic occasion but she had not been prepared for someone quite so outrageously odd, so completely a fright. Dr. Lorimer was mountainous, not only up and down, but round and round as well, and then her clothes were so strange, that old, old fur coat, making almost no pretense of the large safety pins that held it together, and above the huge, aimlessly smiling gray face, a small toque composed entirely of artificial pink roses and set askew on a bundle of tumbling black coils and escaping hairpins. Clarissa, with a sensitive novelist's eye, dreaded to think into what strange realm the poor creature's mind had strayed. With a woman of the world's tact, however, she cried, Dr. Lorimer, this is so awfully kind of you. Not at all, dear. I was only too glad to be of help. It's so seldom that Cleo can aid the other muses, isn't it? Dr. Lorimer's voice was strangely small coming out of her massive form, like a little girl's reciting a party piece. Its childish effect was the greater after Clarissa Crane's sophisticated, strangled contralto. I do hope I can help you, Rose said, 
because your novel sounds so very, very interesting. Her mind strayed away over the novels she had read. The Forsyth Saga, The Last Days of Pompeii, a book called Beau Sabreur, and of course, a number more when she was a girl. They hadn't been interesting at all, she remembered. Thank you, said Clarissa. I'm sure you can. Taking me to this frightfully important lecture in itself, and then I wanted to know... Rose Lorimer interrupted her question. We'd better choose something to eat, dear, first, she said, and looked at Clarissa over the top of the menu with a sort of shy leer. She was not normally given to calling people dear or to leering at them, but she had somehow arrived at this approach as suitable for so unusual com a companion as a smart lady novelist. It was a manner that recalled a poor stage performance of a bowed and suggested a subconscious appraisal of her guest that was hardly complimentary. Will you have an ice, dear? she asked. And then, remembering the seasonable cold weather, she added, or there seems to be sundries, and she lingered over the wondrous range of dishes in print before her. Oh no, just some tea, Clarissa said, and then, fearing to hurt the poor creature's feelings, added, and some toast would be nice. Toast, repeated Rose. What with, dear? Oh, just butter. Clarissa feared being involved with sardines. I don't see toast and butter, said Rose, who had in fact got involved with the sardines section. Oh yes, I do. It's farther down. Buttered toast, she explained. Of course, I've no right at all to consider doing a historical novel, said Clarissa, her eye trying to avoid the glistening circle of butter grease that grew ever larger around Dr. Lorimer's lips. But somehow I feel the past speaks for us so much at this moment. It was the critics, in fact, who had spoken so determinedly against her knowledge of modern life in her last novel. And then those extraordinary dark centuries, the faint twilight that flickers around the departing Romans and the real Arthur, the strange shapes thrown up by the momentary gleams of her knowledge, and, above all, the enormous sense of its relation to ourselves, its nowness, if I can call it that. The brilliant Romano-British world, the gathering shadows, and then the awful darkness pouring in. Rose, who, when the muffled voices of her idéfix were not working in her, was a very down-to-earth scholar, could make nothing of all this darkness and light business. She contented herself with eating as much of the buttered toast as possible. Then, taking out a packet of wool binds, she lit one and blew a cloud of smoke in Clarissa's direction, as though she was smoking out a nest of wasps. I'm afraid you won't find much of all in all that in Forsheim's lecture, dear, she said kindly. It's about trade. Oh, but that's so fascinating. Clarissa felt shy and was unable to stop talking. The furs and amber from the Baltic, the great Volga route, 
Yes, even in the darkest times, the persistence of trade. Think of Sutton Hoo, the homage of the barbarians to civilization, that great Byzantine dish. Inferior factory workmanship, said Rose, and she did not this time add dear. Clarissa collected her po poise around her embarrassed shoulders. But what I want from you, she said, a simple intelligent seeker once more, is the whole story of the clash of the pagan and Christian worlds in England. Oh, that's a very large request, I'm afraid, said Rose. She had suffered too much for her theories not to be suspicious of such a frontal attack. Did you read the articles I sent you? Oh, yes, said Clarissa, and found them fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But it was the background that I wanted. You see, I'm no scholar. I know nothing really, for example, of comparative religion. Of course, I've read Fraser and Dr. Margaret Murray about the witches. She stopped, alarmed at the sudden change in her hostess's expression. A deep pink had spread over Rose's rather grubby cheeks, giving them a curious likeness to the soiled flowers in her hat. I'm afraid, dear, she said, if you want to talk about witches, you've come to the wrong person. I'm a very plain scholar. An historian, you know, is not the same thing as an anthropologist. Her little girl voice took on quite a hard timbre. Fraser, Margaret Murray, indeed. She was always being confronted with this awful confusion. Her theory, her knowledge of the nature of the early medieval church, was not based on folklore and fancy and that sort of thing. She was a factual historian, trained by Tout and Stokesay. And then, what she saw so clearly sometimes nowadays, the conspiracy, the strange age-old conspiracy which she alone had guessed at, was something beside which Dr. Murray's Dianic cult and divine victims paled into childish insignificance. Clarissa, realizing the magnitude of her blunder, began to extricate herself, but Dr. Lorimer was listening now to voices quite other than Clarissa's cultured tones. Really, thought Clarissa, if collecting historical material is going to be as tiresome as this, I wish I had accepted the offer of writing a travel book on Angola. Seeing Dr. Lorimer's blank expression, she raised her voice. Heaven knew how deaf the old thing was. Of course, the Melfem excavation seems to me so fascinating, she shouted, averting her eyes from a nearby party of goggling schoolchildren. Yes, said Dr. Lorimer distantly. It is very fascinating. She decided not to tell this stupid woman just how fascinating. She would return the conventional judgment. But you must remember that Bishop Erpwald was a very unusual person. So much we know from Bede alone. We can't judge everything by Meltham. Did you take part in the dig? Asked Clarissa in a, in a sporty voice that she somehow felt necessary for the colloquialism. Bishop Urpwald's tomb was excavated in 1912, dear, said Dr. Lorimer sharply. 
I was only a girl. Clarissa poured herself out a cup of cold tea and drank it in her confusion. I've always been awful about dates, she explained. Well, you must try to get them right in your book, mustn't you? said Dr. Lorimer. Then, noticing her guest's embarrassment, she relented and said, There was no reason why you shouldn't think I helped at Meltham. Fifty-five must seem as old as the hills to a girl like you. Clarissa reflected that the simple two had their charms. She almost regretted her Women's Hours talks in the Middle Age Looks Back series. And anyway, Rose added, I look as old as the hills. As a matter of fact, it was a great compliment to pay to a pupil of Professor Stokesay's. Meltham was the crown of his work, in my opinion. No, everything he did was wonderful. He taught me all I know, and so vigorous right up to the end, though he rather left his old colleagues behind them. He became a man of affairs, dear, she ended, as though this was some sort of physical metamorphosis. Yes, I remember, said Clarissa. He was one of the men of Munich, wasn't he? And instantly regretted the contribution. But she need not have been anxious, for Rose smiled vaguely. Yes, bless his heart, she said. He'd gone quite beyond my little world. And you really think that the wooden figure, Clarissa tilled away in query. Oh, a fertility god, dear, said Rose. No doubt of it at all. Of course, the carving is very crude, much cruder than the few finds they've made on the Baltic coast. Due to native workmanship, no doubt with a continental tradition almost lost. That accounts for the large size of the member, you know. Clarissa felt she need not have feared to finish her sentence. But it's an Anglo-Saxon deity, all right, a true Whig, one of the idola Bede was so shocked about, or pretended to be, shall we say, she added mysteriously.